Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have an accomplished DJ that I've been a fan of for years through the New Jack Swing Forever Form from the island from the English Channel of Jersey, but lives in Switzerland, home of the great Swiss chocolate, Swiss miss, all that good <laughs> stuff. My brother from another mother, the one, the only DJ Soul Child. Welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, bro. Yo, Jarrell. It's great to, spy, it's great to finally talk to you, man. It's been a minute and uh, we've known each other for a while. I mean, just through what you've been doing, what I've been doing. Uh, but we only just sort of really hooked up over the past year or something on Facebook, funnily enough. But um, yeah, I've been following your interviews, you know, um, from the NJS4E days, you know, and um, yeah, man, you did the damn thing, man. You asked the right questions. You 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 really hold great interviews, man. So uh, respect to you, bro. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. And same thing here. I've been a admirer of your work for years. And it's funny, like how you said, within the past year or so, we've really been connecting. So it's great that you're finally able to come on to Beyond the Album Cover and uh, chop it up with me. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate the invitation. Seriously. Um, ah, man, it's not a problem. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. So what was life growing up like in Jersey? And also, how much did you have to pay for those U.S. imports? <laughs> well, um, I only spent my first nine years on Jersey, actually. So um, when I was nine years old, we came to Switzerland. So I wasn't really... Um, you know, I wasn't uh, collecting music back then just yet. You know, I was still in my Transformer days. You know, I was, I'm, a, I'm still a huge Transformers fan. Uh, like our mutual friend, Andrew Knight. Shout out to Andrew Knight. What up, Knight? And so, yeah, so my whole music um, collecting started when I was about 11 years old, when we finally got settled in here. And I was pushing my toys aside. And then I finally discovered MTV. And that's where my love for R&B started growing. But, um, I mean, the roots of my taste for music I guess would be through my mother because she used to listen to um soulful music you know like R&B inspired well R&B influenced music or actually R&B music like Whitney Houston, Average White Band, uh, Janet Jackson, uh, Stevie Wonder, what else would you listen to? Um, Doobie Brothers, um, like tons of like you know R&B soul influenced music and so I I I learned to sort of develop a sort of love for grooves, you know what I mean? Whether it was from the pop side, if it was a little bit of Madonna, you know, like early Madonna stuff, or like, you know, the Whitney Houston and, and of course, average white band, and you don't get more funky than that, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, so my taste in music developed through my mother. And um, yeah, and then from that point on, I discovered MTV by myself. I used to creep downstairs when they were asleep, my parents. And I'd watch uh, the soul of MTV and MTV raps, you know, all of that stuff and stuff I should have been listening to or watching at an early age because it had cuss, you know, cuss words in it. And, you know, hip hop was more rugged and, and my parents didn't approve of that at first, you know, but I couldn't help myself, man. I fell in love with the culture at a very early age. And um, my first cassette cassette tape was a Michael Jackson bad. And um, yeah, my mom, she gave me that. And funnily enough, my first CD was Michael Jackson, Dangerous. So Michael Jackson has always been like a part of my, you know, um, musical history, should I say. And I'm a huge fan still to this day, obviously, like who isn't, you know what I mean? But yeah, I discovered New Jack Swing through MTV, you know, like the Color Me Bad, uh, I Want to Sex You Up. I mean, I was 11 years old, didn't know what the hell they were talking about. You know, I Want to Sex You Up. What does that mean? 
but I was singing along to it and I was jamming to it. <laughs> and, you know, Bobby Brown, um, Every Little Step by Bobby Brown was like the first R&B song that I fell in love with. When I, I mean, immediately the moment I saw the video, I was like, wow, what is this? What are these dance moves? And, and who is this guy, man? This song is so funky, you know? And, and I got into New Kids on the Block too, because they were around that time period. And I'm not ashamed to say that, man. New Kids on the Block were dope, man. I don't give a shit. Am I allowed to curse on here? Yes, you can. Oh, okay, okay, that's good. So yeah, it was New Kids on the Block. It was Naughty by Nature. It was uh, MC Hammer at the time. Um, uh, who else? Bobby Brown, obviously, like I said, and then Guy. And that's how I sort of developed my knack for R&B, you know? And uh, from that moment forward, it, I just became obsessed with it. And I've been a you know, huge, huge, huge messenger of the genre since. Right, and just to go show you how old we are, folks, we remember cassette tapes where you actually had to pay maybe 12 bucks for it or translate into yeah. foreign currency, unwrap the plastic. And the thing that I would love to do with cassettes and CDs would read the liner notes, see who was producing yes. what, who was the writers, and find yes. the credits. And for those of you that are fans of the mass Singer, the current singer, current season, excuse me, is underway. And I think Bobby Brown is the crap. Really? Wow. Yeah, I think well, he is. The thing is, I can't get that over here, man. I have to stream it online or something. Yeah, because it's see. currently on yeah. in the US. But the second thing for you know international fans is that you gotta wait probably a couple of months after it airs in the US, unless you have the plug that can hook it up to where you can watch it on the fire stick or Roku or something at yeah, the same yeah. time as the US. And it's funny that you should mention MTV because I believe MTV Europe they had a rap show call yo and when the u.s executives mm. saw that it was taken off they decided let's do a u.s version and that's how we got yo and tv raps with the daily show hosted by ed love oh, right. Gray, and the weekly show right. which was hosted by fat five freddy right right well hey back to bobby brown real quick i mean he's on the masked singer man i mean i mean this guy's got a very unmistakable voice i mean especially now in this day and age where he sounds all gravelly you know like mm. he's I know he, he's he's smoked like six packets of Newports in a day. Like he, he sounds all shut up right now, you know. But yeah, that should be very interesting to see who really guesses and who doesn't, you know. Yeah, because I believe it's him because when I heard "Ain't No Sunshine," that was the song that the crowd performed. The voice immediately for me was the giveaway because no one. I'm a big new edition fan. I can spot out the voices right away. So I think it's him. But a lot of the different Facebook forms for the show had different guesses, but a lot of people think that the crab is Bobby Brown, but we'll find out soon enough uh, if Ooh. it's actually the bad boy of R&B. Now- Yeah, please with, let me know, man. Yes, yeah. I definitely will do. So with MTV over in Europe, they aired a lot of what was going on in the US, but they also sprinkled mm. in what was going on culturally. Yeah. And there was mm -hmm. one R&B group over in the UK that I felt- should have made a lot of noise in the U.S., but for reasons or another, maybe U.S. labels weren't really checking for international acts like that at the time. Uh, they kind of fell by the wayside, and that was Rhythm and Bass, which was the group where Rhythm and Bass, songwriter Roses. and producer Wayne Hector got his start. 
Yes, and they did the original version of Tell Me by Groove Theory. Yes, they did. And then I also heard, too, yeah. that I'm in Love by Joe was originally supposed to have been done by them, but for reasons or another, that never happened. Oh, really? So tell me about uh, Rhythm and Bass, and why is it that you think they never really made an attempt to try to crack stateside in America? Oh, man, that's a good question. Actually, don't have too much history knowledge on them um, because um, all I do know is that Brian Powell, do you remember Brian Powell from back in the day? Uh-huh. Yeah, he co-wrote Roses. And I know that much because I met Brian Powell a couple of years back in London. He's a great guy. Shouts out to Brian Powell. And um, yeah, man, I mean, that was a very short-lived situation, wasn't it? I think they only had like two singles. I think it was Tell Me and Roses. And was there another... Yeah, there was B-side a cut called uh, Can't Stop This Feeling, I believe, because they did a video. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I knew about the music, um, but I only found about, found out about them at a very later point um, because they weren't really in the charts. It wasn't big. It didn't blow up too much, you know. Mm. It was more like of an underground hit, if you if you will. So, um, yeah, I found out about rhythm and bass like later in life and the whole history behind Tell Me and all that stuff. So um, mm. I don't know why they didn't crack it, but it was, it was very hard for UK acts to to crack the u.s side anyway like you had cruise as well mm. you had beverly knight you of course soul to soul they went global um Loose yeah um, yes exactly exactly so it was very difficult for the uk market to, to crack um u.s in general um i think the u.s is just so over flooded with their own music mm. like it was like around the new jack swing era i mean you had so many groups man female and male so many, you know, solo acts as well. It was just a very oversaturated market at the time. So I don't, I don't think there was enough room for them, to be honest. Yeah, because if you look at U.S. culture, we export out and other countries don't import in yeah. over here. Because right. if you take a look at New Kids on the Block, they were the template for Nigel Martin Smith to create Take That. Yes, exactly. <laughs> very good, very good. You're a true historian here. Yes, and... Um, yeah, and a, a lot of black producers actually worked on um, Take That's music, actually. And uh, well, Johnny Douglas, for example, he was he was one of the producers of Take That, and he was doing like stuff like Eternal. He was doing Michelle Gale at the time. He was he was doing George Michael. Um, he's not black, but he he's a white. He was a white R and B producer in London back in the day, and and he's still like knocking out hits with Kylie Minogue to this day, you know, like he's still, he's still going strong. And we had our own set of producers like 2B3, um, you know, shouts out to my boy Neville Thomas. That's my boy. A shout out to Lindsley, of course, you know, on the remix tip. We had Full Crew, which of course was Cruz, the, the R&B group. Um, we had so many producers. And whilst they did do a sort of new Jackish swing beat type of sound, it still had a very distinctive UK sound to me. Mm. It was very, still very soulish, if you know what I mean. Mm. I think um, the whole Teddy Riley, you know, New Jack Swing sound that people were copying in the US. I think we were trying to do our own version in the UK, but it wasn't quite that. We still had our own UK sound. It was very typical UK. And you'd see like on, on like releases of um, US New Jack artists, you'd have, you'd often have like a, a, U, a UK mix or UK version, like for example, Redhead Kingpin mm. to, you know, to sort of, a custom which was accustomed to our scene you know what i mean which was a bit more soulful so yeah the, the, there was a divide in in terms of the sound and i think that's probably played a role in in um uk acts not breaking in the us because they didn't quite get it we were trying to sort of i think we were trying to sort of um 
accommodate each other, mm. but not to let each other in, if you know what I mean. Right. Kind of do things yeah. to make it translate to the U.S. and vice versa, right. but not really exactly. having your own yeah. to it. And I got to mention uh, pioneering acts such as rap group Cookie Crew and uh, We Papa Girls. Yeah. And we Papa Girls, they got some of the early productions by Teddy Riley. Yeah, exactly. That's very true. Yes. In the early 80s. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so late 80s. Got, sorry. Yeah. The late we, 80s, the, yeah. You got the beat record. And also, if you look at uh, Jive, a lot of the early rap acts would go over to the UK to either perform or get their cuts produced. Because if you look at the credits yeah. for Mr. Magic's Wand by Houdini, that was produced by, yes, yeah. Mr. She Blinded Me With Science, Thomas Dolby. Right, right. Well, I think another thing is like, you know, everything that we loved in the UK about R&B, it, it stemmed from the US. And um, we were trying to copy what they were doing. You know what I mean? So um, maybe it came off as a cheap copy of what the US was doing. So the US right. was like, yeah, it's cool, but it's not us. You know what I mean? Right. We invented this shit. We did it. Right. And it's true. But um, yeah, man, I, but we had a lot of great and respectable acts, you know, from, from the UK. And um, and we had our own little tight-knit scene. And um, it was very cool, man. It was great to see like a, a UK R&B scene develop, you know, through through copying what the US was doing. Mm. And of course, Teddy Riley being a huge influence in that. Right. Because I always looked at everything urban wise that the UK was doing. It was pretty much in reverence to the US. Because if you look at interviews with George Michael, Boy George, Adele, Sam Smith, mm. uh, Dusty Springfield, Lulu, the list goes on and on about all of the US yeah. acts they were influenced by and how it was just an homage. And of course, the Northern Soul movement was pretty much the UK's mm. take on Motown R&B. Yes. But it was primarily done by white artists, funnily enough. <laughs> yeah, because I believe like, there was you, a... You, you, late... you, Go ahead. Yeah, it was, it's more like a sort of um, a blue-eyed soul scene from the UK. Mm-hmm. You can put it that way. It was like yeah. fused with a little bit of rock elements, a little bit of ska sometimes, and a little bit of pop. But it was essentially soul music in the core, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. I believe there was a late DJ by the name of uh, Steve Walsh. He did a cover of I Found Loving, which was originally done by the Fatback Band. And then that was exactly. covered later by Jeff Red. Jeff Red. Yep. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it also can't be overstated enough the influence of reggae in UK R&B because of the migration from people from the Caribbean over to the UK. Yes. And then you have Lovers Rock, Absolutely. which never made its way stateside, which is puzzling beyond me. But, you know, you have music <laughs> yeah. youth and a lot of the reggae influence acts from the UK had some buzz in and around mm. the pond, but made its way stateside for a bit. So can we talk about the influence yeah. of reggae in UK music? Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, like there was so many people coming from from the Caribbean to to London. And obviously, you know, the whole dancehall reggae scene was very big and you could see it trans sort of, you know, sort of make its way into R&B as well. Like Wayne Marshall, for example, or even like the, the, the sort of accent that Mark Morrison had on Return of the Mac has a very sort of reggae sort of, you know, accent or flow going going on in there, you know, and um yeah, man, reggae is like still big to this day. It's still very beloved, like the lovers rock and all that stuff. You know, like soulful reggae and and um, uh, what was what's this guy? Um, uh, Maxi Priest, mm-hmm. for example, he fu- he fused the both. You know, the, the reggae and the R and B together. And uh, who else was there out there? I'm trying to think. 
because growing up, I was I was more US based in my in my influences in my taste. And the whole UK thing was sort of going parallel, but I paid more attention to the US. Uh, I just liked the sound more because it sounded a bit more, uh, how should I say, a bit more authentic. Mm. Because obviously it's the birthplace of what I love listening to. But yeah, as for reggae, who else was doing it? Um, trying to think of some good reggae acts from the UK. I was never hugely into, into reggae. It was something I sort of listened to every now and again, you know, I was dabbling right. on the side with it. But um, yeah, I was always more the R&B soul type, man. Mm -hmm. So now with radio in Switzerland, was it hard to hear R&B, hip hop, and they were pretty much playing a lot of pop? Or did you have to go underground to hear it and get your records from a mom and pop shop or just order them from a catalog yeah, in man. the US? Yeah, dude, man. I mean, it, it was like self-education because, um, yeah, the, the, the radio wasn't playing R&B, so... It wasn't really playing uh, hip hop either. I mean, if anything, it had to be like a huge US hit. Like, for example, Brandy Monica, The Boy's Mine. You would hear that on the radio. Or you'd hear, you know, an old Destiny's Child song because they were just huge. They cross over to pop as well. So, um, yeah, like trying to sort of dig deep into the R&B world was self-education and just literally going to the store and sort of rummaging through what's in the store and sort of listening, you know, at these listening points, you know, where you put the headphones on and stick the CD in and just trying to discover it by yourself. Yeah, I was, I was just a crate digger. And I was just so in love with the music that I really literally took hours of my week just to go out and um, listen to new music. And um, <laughs> I remember like when, I, when we got to Switzerland, I had German lessons because, you know, obviously my German wasn't good yet. And um, yeah, my parents, I hate me for saying this, but I think they know anyway. But they used to give me, give me money for the tram to go mm. to German lessons. And I would flunk these German lessons and instead go to record shops and spend the money they gave me for the tram on records that I was listening to and loved. And they would come back, and I'll come back from these German lessons and be like, where do you, where do you get that album from? Where do you get that CD from? Man, I, I was just, you know, I was saving for it. I've been saving for it for weeks with my pocket money and stuff like that. Of course, that was a huge lie. But yeah, man, I, I was never interested in, in school or, or just learning or, or even I took clarinet lessons, man, because I, I wanted to become a drummer so bad. But my parents were like, no, you're not going to learn that. You're not going to learn drums. It's not a proper instrument. Learn real music, you know. So I went to this music school and um, I'm, I'm drifting off here, but you'll, you'll get it when I get to, you know, get to the end of it. And they would pay for me to go to these clarinet lessons. And um, because my, my friends in this music school, they were like, yeah, I want to play clarinet, clarinet. I didn't even know what clarinet was. I just said, okay, I want to play clarinet too. <laughs> so I went to clarinet lessons. I thought it sucked. I hated it and had this really horrible teacher. And they would pay, you know, pay me money to go with the tram, you know, to these clarinet lessons. And of course, pay the teacher. I flunked them too. Like I... <laughs> They sent me to ballroom dancing because I wanted to do hip hop dancing, but they didn't want to allow that either. So they went and sent me to ballroom dancing. I flunked off those as well. And I spent time just going to record shops when I should, be, should have been doing what they were told, you know, telling me to do and spending money on. So sorry to my parents about that. But yeah, my passion for R&B was a little bit greater than what you wanted me to do, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. So yeah, so like Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, parents just to understand is pretty much was still the same mindset like in the U.S. Yeah. How the old generation looked at hip hop as noise and not real music and you should be focused on things that will right. make 
socially acceptable. Yeah. So now, as far as DJing goes, how did you end up getting your first DJ set? Did you end up having odd jobs, saving money to get your first pair of turntables and mixers? Or did you get a hand-me-down for somebody? How did that come about? Well, the, the funny thing is um, I've always been fascinated by DJing. And I've told the story a couple of times in an interview before. And, um, excuse me, and I'd watch, you know, what the DJ was doing on MTV. I was into drumming, I was into songwriting, but the DJing thing was really fascinating to me too. And um, and I was a huge Rex and Effect fan. You know, when the Hard or Smooth album came out mm. and you had the cut technician on there, DJ Steve D doing the scratches. And I used to think, wow, this guy is incredible. And you know, the, the whole, the rhythm that he has and how he really sort of uh, makes a song sound really dope with his cuts and scratches. And you know how you have genes, right? And, mm. and when you sort of scratch your jeans with your nail, it makes a sort of scratching sound. Mm. And that's how I would learn the movement of the scratching, you know, the backward and forth. And I would do, I would do that to Rex and Feck records or to Public Enemy records, just to learn scratching and to learn the technique without even having a record player yet. And um, so, yeah, that's how I basically got the, the hang of it because I'm a very rhythmic guy through drumming as well. So I, I sort of got the gist very quickly. And, um, and then I, I spent seven years as a boy band member out here, an R&B boy band member. And we'd go to the club often. And this guy called DJ Scar, he was like a local DJ. And he was from Germany. He was from across the border, but he came to Switzerland to play a lot. And I looked up to him a lot because he would like buy these rare R&B promos and play them in his sets. And I wasn't collecting vinyl back then yet because I hadn't been a DJ yet. And I was like, oh my God, where, where is he getting these songs from? What is the name of this track? And I'd go up to him and say, yo, bro, what's the name of this record? I need to have this. And he would show me the record. I'm like, what? I've never seen this before in my life. Because you couldn't get certain things on CD. You know, like it was like white label or a certain promo. And I thought to myself, well, I need this music too. Because as an R&B fan and collector, I want to have everything that I can get my hands on. So I basically bought a record player. Um, it was a reloop record player. It wasn't a Techniques. It was a reloop because it was cheap. And I, and I, you know, I spent my first money, my pocket money on that. And um, so I bought a record player just to get that music so I could have it myself. Mm. And then the whole DJing thing just came through just toying around with it at home and just thinking, do you know what? I'll see what DJ Cut, you know, DJ Cut Technician can do. I'll see if I can do, you know, do what he's doing with, with this record and, just trying things out, you know, see if I can get the movements right and the, the rhythm right and all that stuff. And I had one record player. I didn't have a mixer, just a record player. And I got hooked, like, super immediately. I was thinking, wow, this sounds really cool. So um, literally a couple of weeks later, um, I went out and bought myself the rest of the equipment. And so whilst I was in this boy band, I was um, learning how to DJ on the side just teaching myself because I wanted to, because I was fascinated. I, I loved the art of it, the, you know, the, the craft. And um, when the boy band eventually split up, I thought to myself, I need a plan B because I was representing the music that I loved up to that point through being on stage, you know, and having fans and all that stuff. And, you know, I was making the music that I loved and I loved it. It was, it was some, some of the best years of my life going on tour with these guys and everything. It was so fun. But then it all came to an end. That was another story. My previous interviews, you'll probably hear it. 
But anyway, I needed a plan B to represent the music that I loved. And so through that came our plan B, just becoming a DJ. And he's making money by playing incredible music. Why can't I do that? So put one one together and I decided to become a DJ because I was able to represent music I loved. I was able to earn money along with it. Mm-hmm. And um, is that my internet connection or yours? Uh, I believe that's yours, but we're all good. But we're all good. So as far as the boy band goes, I got to hear yeah. about this. So um, was your <laughs> style of the music more Take That or E17? No, no, none of, none of the above. Um, we were very influenced by 112, Jagged Edge, Blackstreet, Boys to Men. I mean, Boys to Men was our biggest influence. And um, at the time, B2K just popped. So um, they were like the hugest group on, on planet Earth in terms of R&B groups. Mm. And we loved their style. We loved the, the sound of their music. And we tried to emulate them too, just by, you know, with the style we had and the, the stage performance, you know, with the, with the moves like B2K, when they were on stage, they were killing it, you know, with the dance moves and stuff. We tried to be that. Mm. But we still tried to harmonize like boys to men. Mm. So yeah, it, it was them two, man. And um, people would refer to us as, as, as the B2K of Switzerland. So that was funny. Wow, that's cool. And we were like a mixed group. Oh man, that's dope. So speaking yeah. of boy bands, um, what is it about the European market that back in the 90s, early 2000s that US acts would send over there to cut their teeth before coming back to America, because as we know, Backstreet Boys and NSYNC yeah. cut their teeth in Europe first before breaking yeah. big back home over here in America. Mm-hmm. And this was right off the tail end of Take That Splitting after the Nobody Else album. Absolutely. Great album, by the way. I'm not going to front that's a great album. Yeah, I still sure is a dope record. Yeah. Woo, come on, man. Yeah, a bunch of others on there, like Lady Tonight as well was dope. And Saturday to Sunday was a great joint. But yeah. Um, to your question, um, yeah, we were just very, it was a very boy band oriented market out here. We had so many boy bands, man, from, from Holland, from Germany, from the UK, from, from Ireland, of course, Westlife. You probably know about them. Mm, Boyzone. And yes, yes. And um, who else? There was, there was another group from, from Ireland that um, Teddy produced. They were called. Oh, oh, you're speaking of My Town, because I think two of the My members in the group uh, went on to yeah. go on the script. Absolutely. There you go. Good man. Good man. You know your shit. I know my, <laughs> you know I know my stuff, man. Hey, don't play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. I love it, man. It's great talking to you, man. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we just had tons of groups out here and it was just the thing. Like if you, if you wanted to be in all the big pop magazines and, and, um, you know, and on TV shows, you had to be in a fluffy boy band or girl band, man. And it was just, uh, it was just one of those markets. It was just huge out here. And um, all the American boy bands, like, like you said, NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and O-Town, they cut their teeth by becoming support acts of big European acts on their stadium tours. And that's how they, you know, earned their fan bases. And that's how they became huge, man. And yeah, I mean, let's be real. I mean, the, the UK boy bands were cool. But no one was killing it, like NSYNC, for example. I mean, their moves and their harmonizing and they were just on a different level, you know? So, I mean, it was no coincidence that NSYNC and Backstreet Boys became huge out here, you know? 
Yeah, because I heard that Bye 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 was originally supposed to go to five, but they passed on it, and that's how NSYNC got it. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Simon Cowell had said that Bye 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 was originally for five, and for some reason or another, they passed because Simon felt had five recorded that record. They already had moderate success here in America, but that would have put them over the top over here. But they passed, and... That's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. And I had the chance to interview KG from Eminate and Andreas from Damage. Oh, yeah. And it was interesting hearing right. their stories how for Black UK R&B boy groups, they weren't really getting mm. the same push like the pop counterparts, like yeah. your Kate Dax, your E-17. That is true. Your bras and 911, yeah. Code Red, and the list goes on and on with all those pop R&B yeah. pop groups out of the UK during the 90s and how there was a big Absolutely. Yeah, we had Ultimate Chaos. Don't even remember them from back in the day as well. They, they they were trying to come up as well. They had, you know, they did that that um, cover version of um, Levert's Casanova, mm. which was huge in Europe. Um, yeah, um, I think it was like, the thing is, you had to be super pop with your music to, to really break out. And I think, you know, most black R&B pop groups probably had a little bit of trouble representing a sort of fluffy take that Westlife-ish kind of music, you know what I mean? Like R&B was its own scene. Mm. R&B was, was semi-mainstream at the time. You had, the, you know, the odd hits, but um, it was more of a scene, for, you know, for itself, really. And so being in a black boy band, I, I, I can imagine the struggle was really sort of being true to yourself as an R&B singer or what your roots are as a mm. gospel singer, whatever, and trying to sort of conform to the pop world as well. Um, I think Damage did a great job in in cracking that you know sort of really sort of straddling that line between pop and r&b whilst getting respect from from both ends you know mm. um damage they, they, uh, they were amazing i loved their album man that forever album was crazy yeah, dope record the uh, cut father and joe love love remix i felt would have broken here in america and also forever because i believe that was one of the first yeah. records that was written and produced by wayne hector that really got a lot of pop exposure and yeah outside of them the only act i could hear covering that record for me would have been uh color me bad oh good yeah good point good point and they had little c's on on one of their records i think the song was called anything mm-hmm so they brought that U.S. element over as well. And we had Donnie um, producing on their album. And um, I'm, I could be mistaken, but I think, did Lindsley do something on there? I can't remember. But yeah, man, uh, yeah, Damage were amazing. And it's such a shame that it never lasted. Well, it lasted two albums. And after that, it kind of sort of, you know, broke apart. But yeah, man, um, yeah, the UK R&B scene was, was a scene for itself. And um like I said, I think the whole boy band thing was so ever-present and, and was so dominating that everyone tried their shot. But, you know, again, where do you walk the line between R&B and soul? Mm. You, I think um, Ultimate Chaos could have could have been bigger had they had the right management, I think, or the right promotion behind them. Mm. Because, uh, yeah, they were a great group too. But, um, yeah, man, I think most R&B groups from the UK were actually very sort of authentic R&B as well. That's why I didn't cross over. Yeah, like Eternal, Eternal did a great job of doing like New Jack Swing and pop. Mm-hmm. And they tried to break America. They didn't quite make it. But um, right. yeah, they were huge in Europe though. Right, which yeah. was surprising because they recorded Angel of Mine first before Monica re-recorded it. Before Monica. Hit. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the first, I think it's the Craig David's first ever release 
was a B-side of Damages. Oh, he wrote one of their B-sides. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I think of the song. Yeah, because I didn't hear of Craig David until they started to market Born to Do It over here in the US because he did a US video version of Fill Me In, where it was totally yeah. different from the European version. And how yes. I thought his success over here in America would have opened the floodgates more to have a lot more of the UK RB acts to come over, seeing how well he did over mm. in America. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, well, the thing, the whole, the whole fill me in thing was it was very, it was a very new sound for, the, for you know, for the States because it was very two step and UK garage influence, you know, the whole tempo and all that and the production. So I think that's where it, you know, got a bit difficult. But I mean, he had moderate success with that fill me in song. I think a lot of people still remember him by that. But as of that point, I mean, I think, I don't know, was Seven Days big in the States? Yeah, Seven Days sure. was big, but he did a remix of it with, uh, most deaf yeah oh no yeah, yeah that's your premiere and yeah. uh, nate doll so mm. that got a lot of play on underground mix shows and stuff so that was yeah pretty pretty huge but like you mentioned two-step jungle german bass the roots kind of incorporated that a little bit and you got me because if you listen to the end of it when quest love was doing the drum break it's very mm. two-steppy drum and bass right exactly exactly yeah and then the song i'm thinking of is um Ah, I think it was like, it was a B-side. Yeah, there was a competition on the Forever single, the Damage Forever single, and you could submit your songs. You had to record something. We had to, you had to record a demo to an instrumental that was on the single, and mm. you'd send it in, and then it'd be released on the on their next single release. Mm. So yeah, that that's where the world first heard of Craig David, really. Wow. Yeah. Who who knew? And uh, give you a little bit of a backstory about Happy Bat the cover of Surfaces hit, uh, which was originally done by the UK band High Tension, Eminem yes. covered it. And when I interviewed KG, he told me that they wanted to do a remix for it and put Biggie on it. But the Columbia Records UK Biggie. division passed on it because they couldn't understand why you're going to put this US rapper on this track. And like how you were stated earlier, they were focused on making them straight pop but kg and those guys really understood like hey we want to be mm. authentic r&b and we want to have inroads in the u.s and they had mr dalvin from jodeci do i think one or two cuts for him in their attempt to yeah. break in the u.s and then they had i got a little something for you featured on the bad boys soundtrack right yeah exactly yeah and i think you know the, the, the black boy bands have tried to sort of cater to the, the pop audience in the UK, but they'd always have, they'd always have like the, the street remix to cater to the R&B DJ. So it would get played on, on, you know, all the R&B shows, radio shows as well. So um, that's what I really loved. Like uh, when, I, when I was crate digging and looking for music and discovering new music as a young teen, um, I would always look for the singles just for the remixes. I was always about the remixes, man. Because, you know, sometimes the original version would come off a little bit corny, a little bit too popish. But I knew that was always going to be like a, an R&B street remix, you know, mm. on the flip. Mm. And that's what I was always going after, man. I was always the remix guy. And look where I am today. I'm the remix guy now. So. <laughs> the remix king. And speaking of remixes, uh, Moni Love just recently did an interview with Questlove Supreme. And before she did Ladies First with Queen Latifah, she actually was on the remix for She Drives Me Crazy by Five Young Cannibals. And I didn't even notice until she stated that what? In the interview. Yes, there's a Moni Love wow. remix of She Drives Me Crazy by the Five Young Cannibals, and she's doing a 16 on it. 
has that ever been heard? I mean, is it like a version on YouTube or something? It's it's on YouTube. I was just listening to it the other day. Wow. I need to hear that, man. Because that sounds so random. Like yeah. that Find Young Cannibals, like <laughs> it doesn't even sound like remotely hip hop-ish, you know what I mean? No, not not at all. But knowing that she's originally from the UK and then migrated over to the US, she had the best yeah. of both worlds where she was able to take what was going on in the UK and mash mm. it up with what was going on over here in the States and have her own flavor. And as we know, everything that came after that with Moni in the Middle, It's a Shame, mm. Full Term Love off the Class Act soundtrack. And it was just a great meshing yeah. up the two cultures because a lot, she wow, was stating that a great. lot of the UK acts, like you stated, they were looking to the US for their cultural cue and just tried to add yeah. their own flavor to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's crazy, man. I need to look that up right after this interview, man. I'm so intrigued. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be crazy. in for a delectable ear delight. Now, as far as wow. DJing, did you end up locking yourself in a room to learn the craft? Or I didn't notice until absolutely. I saw this on YouTube that MTV Europe would show the DMC World Championships and they would have DJs from around the world compete and show off their skills and everything. Did you learn DJing by watching those as well, in addition to practice, practice, practice? Um, no, I didn't learn it by watching the DMC championships. Um, I locked myself in my room for about, oh, let me see. I started in 2001, and I locked myself in my room for about four years. I didn't go out and do a gig for four years until I felt comfortable, because... I'm the kind of person like when, when I do do something, I want to do it properly. I don't want to mess up. I, I, I want to I respect the art form. Right. And so I took my time to sort of really learn how to mix and, and to scratch, you know, like do clean scratches. And um, yeah, man. So when I did actually have my first gig, it was, it was at a birthday party of, um, of a friend of mine. And she booked me for the, for the first time. I had like two crates of records with me. And I was so nervous, man. Cause I'd never played in front of people before. It was just me, myself and I, I'm in, you know, in my room. So um, yeah, man, but it went down really well. And um, there was someone at the party who recommended me to um, someone who owned the club, which was called um, Babala Bar out here in Basel. Um, everyone who was in Basel knows about Babala Bar. And that's where I had my first proper DJ gig, you know, like in really in front of a club audience. And it just spiraled on from there, man. I mean, I just get, just kept getting bookings and recommendations because I think the, the, the fact that I took the time to sort of really figure out what really works and what, you know, and, and, and listening to, to, of course, like mixtapes by my favorite DJ, my favorite club DJ at the time was DJ Cup Killer. He's like a DJ from Paris. He's, he's huge. And um, yeah, he, did, he would do like these hip hop soul party mixtapes. And I would collect them every time I went to one of his gigs. And I'd listen to them, I'd study them. I'd try and really sort of focus on what he's doing and, and try to emulate what he was doing. He's like my huge, he's like my biggest influence as a DJ, as a club DJ. And I used to go to every gig and I wasn't the one really sort of necessarily dancing. I'd be there just, just watching him, you know, in, in, in awe and in fascination. So uh, yeah, man, I was just trying to do what Cut Killer was doing. And I think that translated well, obviously. And it's just been, you know, it's been a cycle and onwards rise i should say from that point on now you yeah. mentioned you locked in your yourself in the room for four years to really prepare yes. yourself hone your craft yep. and skills and you came out when you felt that hey 
I'm good enough yep. to go out and get a gig. Now, what was that yep. one technique? And collected enough that, music, too. Mm-hmm, I'm sure. So what was the yeah. one technique that took you the longest to get down that you couldn't get right away and you had to perfect it over and over? Oh, good question. Um, I probably have to say the crab scratch. Mm. Because that's a difficult one. Like if, if, you, if you're just, um, I mean, I didn't learn that right out the gate. I mean, I, I had to have some years of experience in the club as well. And uh, it took me about, I don't know, two, two more years to learn that because it's quite a difficult thing. And um, I th- yeah, and sort of scratching with the left hand as well, because mm-hmm. I'm a right-handed guy. So it, it always came easy to me to scratch with the right hand because, you, you know, you've got your, your reflex there and, you know, your, your strength in that arm. Mm-hmm. And so to do it with the left-hand side, that was challenging for me at the beginning as well. But I made sure I did both, you know, in a solid way before I went in the clubs. Mm, wow. And you were one of the last DJs from that generation to do it the old school way. You had, had the physical records and you had to, to have yeah. the stopwatch to do the BPMs, whereas now mm. because of technology, the computer does it for you. Your BPMs is already there for you. It does beat juggling yeah. and everything for you. But you had to yeah. manually, you had to put that mark on your record so you can know your breaks. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why, excuse me, while DJs, um, switch up their music so quickly in the club, you know, like they play it for one chorus and jump to the next record or, you know, even a bit sooner than that, because you've got everything in front of you, you know, exactly what matches, like you can really sort of, um, you can, it actually matches by key as well. So you can see which, which uh, songs actually go together in key. Mm. So you don't really have to do much thinking. You just go right down to work and go crazy. Back in the day, you had to think, you had to really rummage through your collection first, you know, and see, Oh, hold on. Yeah, that's a similar sort of tempo. Uh, but does it match though? You'd, you'd have to think. And that's why most songs used to go up until at least the second chorus mm. or until the, the middle eight section of the, of, of the song. You'd get like a, almost a full song in the club back in the day. Mm. Now, when Because you, organ- you had to have time to react, you know? Yeah. Now, when with your record collection, did you organize it based off of BPMs, genre? How was your catalog in terms of organizing your record crate when you would go and uh, do a set? I had no organization except for, I think it was, yeah, I think it was by genre. It was by R&B, um, New Jack Swing, Dancehall and Hip Hop. That was it. I didn't sort of organize it by tempo or anything like that. I just tried to sort of do the math myself. I mean, that that was part of the skill of becoming a DJ. You had to sort of really know your stuff. You had to really know your collection. So um, Mm. yeah, so most times, I mean, of course it took me time to get into that, but um, after that, I mean, it became automatic. Like you'd automatically hear the next song in your head, which would match with what's currently playing now. And you'd go back in your crate to find it. But of course, yeah, like I said, you had to take time to sort of really know your your crates, you know? Right. And as a DJ, you are the conductor of the room. You have to read the room because you don't want to play your hot records too early when the crowd right. are steadily coming in and you don't want to mm-hmm. beat too soon. So you got to sort of read the temperature of the room and know, okay, I can play these songs in a warm-up set. I could play these songs yeah. in maybe the first hour or so of the night. So by the end of the night, they're all in a frenzy. And then I drop the killer records on them so that they go home at the end of the night happy by last Absolutely. Night. Yeah, I, I really take pride in, in being a solid warm-up DJ in, in, that, in that sense because um, one thing I do hate 
is when you've got a DJ playing before you, opening up the, the night for you. And he's already jamming all the all the all the big you know all the big hits and and right. people are already going off and that around eleven o'clock because the clubs here they start around tenish or eleven right. and they go around right around to about five or four in the morning mm. depending on the club. So if you have got someone already sort of pushing out all the hits when to an empty dance floor eleven o'clock in the evening, it's the most frustrating and annoying thing ever. So I've I've always sworn to myself I've, I'll never be that DJ man. Mm. I'll pull out, I, you know, I like to build up like nice and slow and easy and, and start off with maybe even a 83 BPM, you know, throwing some neo soul, mm. um, some, some down tempo hip hop, you know, just sort of really laid back stuff. And then you right. sort of gradually build up, build up, build up and then climax around one o'clock. Right. Um, did you ever have? And, um, yeah, yeah, man. Have, yeah. I, I've always made sure that I've been a good warm up DJ to other DJs, you know. Right. And that kind of brings me to the unwritten rules of DJing. Like if you're an opener for a headline. You still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Like they'll tell you ahead of time, hey, don't play this because I'm going to play this record or they maybe would cover the label. So that way you couldn't bite what they were playing yeah. or they wouldn't tell you mm-hmm. where they got certain records because it was like that level of, I don't want you to see what I'm doing is like, I'll let you see to a certain extent, but yeah. Keep you at arm's length, so to speak. Cause they don't want you to um, start jacking this. Mm. <laughs> well, they do that enough now, now that you've got, um, you know, all these, these, these apps like uh, Shazam and all that stuff, they'll be right. In, you know, right at the back of you sort of studying what you're doing and sort of saying, Oh, well, you know, what song is that? Let me just get that for my set next time, you know, which is cool. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not about you as a DJ. It's about, it's about the artist, you know? I mean, if, if an artist gets an extra play uh, for their music out of you, then that's great. I mean, you're supposed to be about the cause, not about your ego. You know what I mean? Right. And as we know, you know, some people can be very driven by the ego and in the words of public enemy, believe the hype and don't believe the hype exactly yeah exactly <laughs> now I, I don't trip off that you know i mean if, if anyone wants to sort of i don't know track what i'm playing or asks about a song title i'm very happy to give it out you know because like i said it's not an ego thing man i mean i, I take it as a as a compliment the other day if, if you like what i'm playing that i must be doing something right so yeah mm-hmm. now i want to go back over to the uk r&b side real quick and can we talk about the mm-hmm. impact of uh, omar Omar, yes. Man, I, I remember the first time I saw There's Nothing Like This on MTV. That was exactly around the same time as I started, you know, really sort of gravitating towards New Jack Swing and around the area. I think it was 91 as well, if I'm not mistaken, where that song came out. So, yeah, man, I've always loved that song, man. It always takes me back to my childhood when I, whenever I see that video or hear that song. Such a smooth record, man. And Omar's a legend, definitely, man. Right. Much respect and- to him. Right, and also uh, I believe Troop was very huge over in Europe as well. And before we get into talking about Troop, I want to real quickly do a moment of silence for Reggie Warren uh, from Troop, who passed away yes. a couple weeks ago. Let's have a Rest moment of silence for Reggie Warren. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about the impact of Troop. Impact of Troop. Well, to be honest, in Switzerland, Troop wasn't big. <laughs> Um, no one knew about Troop in Switzerland, man. And um, well, except like the, the, the R&B DJs who were in the, who were in the clubs, obviously, back then. Uh, you had to be a specialist and a really big connoisseur to know about Troop. And I obviously loved Troop. Like their deeper album was how I got into them. 
that was the, the first album I got into into Troop, and it was the first one that was available out here in Switzerland. To be honest, like the Attitude album, I couldn't find it anywhere. Wow! So Troop was my that was my introduction to to the group, and um, it was also through DJ Cutkiller on his um, on his Hip Hop Soul Party. I think was it Volume Two? Yeah, Volume Two mixtape, and then he played um, I'm Not Gaming on that uh, mixtape. And of course, as a huge Cutkiller fan, I always wanted to know about the acts that he was playing on his mixtapes. And so I went and <coughs> studied his playlist and tried to collect the music that he was playing. And that's how I found out about Troop. And yeah, man, I love that group to this day, man. It's, I mean, can you really think of an R&B group that's ever pulled off the same kind of dope moves and still stay in key live like Troop? Yeah, that's very difficult to do because for me, Troop up there for me with New Edition. For me, my one is New Edition, two is Troop, and I had the pleasure to interview Alan, Steve, Rodney, John, John on separate occasions. And uh, the funny thing mm. about the Attitude album, here's a fun fact for you. Um, that was one of the early albums where a young Dallas Austin got his feet wet in the game. He did a, I Will Always Love You and My Music off of that album. And Trent Reznor mm. from Nine Inch Nails was engineer on the Attitude album. Of Nine Inch Nails? Yes, that is if, so random. Yeah, if you get the Attitude cassette or CD, look at the liner notes, mm. you'll see his name by engineer. So Trent Reznor. I have yes, the CD. Rock, rock and Roll Hall of Famer, right. Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor. He was the engineer on the Attitude album for True. That's ridiculous. Like, out of all... I mean, not, not in a bad way, but I mean... Out of all engineers that were probably, you know, at their disposal, why would you take someone from Nine Inch Nails? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, obviously it worked out. He's an incredible musician. Obviously, yeah, it did. But, um, so it yeah. was right around the time where he was starting to, you know, get into the business and everything before Nine Inch Nails really broke with the Downward Spiral album. Yeah. Right. Got you. Man, see, I'm learning a lot through you today, man. Yeah, that the more you know, and insert here the rainbow and the peacock NBC logo. So um, now we had <laughs> mentioned uh, pop earlier and how it was a fertile ground for U.S. pop acts to cut their teeth before coming back over. But mm. we cannot talk about the whole pop scene in Europe and U.S. without mentioning the impact of Herbie Creeshlow, Max Martin and the late Dennis yes. Pop and everything that was coming out of Sharon Studios over in Sweden. And then of course, Ace yep. of Base exploded over there first mm -hmm. and the sign, mm -hmm. which was a big hit in the US. The song was the number one single here in America in 94. And that was something ABBA had not done and they were huge in the US. And Ace of Base remains the only international act to have the number one song in the U.S. on Billboard's year-end Hot 100. That's crazy because they were like a sort of um, they were like a modern-day ABBA, weren't they? Like by the constellation of two guys, two girls. One was blonde, one was dark. Mm -hmm. It was very ABBA-esque, but just you know, catered to to the pop urban audience, I guess. And you are you telling me the sign was bigger than all that she wants? Yeah, yeah, all that she wants was a big hit in the US, but the song was like their mega, mega hit because, like I said, it was the number one song in the US for the year of 94. Wow, okay, because all that she wants that was like the mega hit out here. Like the song was big too, but all that she wants that was the one, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like Crystal, Crystal Waters, like, um, 
She had a 100% pure love. That was mm. a dope record, big out here, but it wasn't bigger than uh, Gypsy Woman. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. So, um, wow, that's crazy. I hated the sign, man. <laughs> I, I loved it because I'm a sucker for pop and how I think Sharon Studios, they had a formula that just translated well no matter where you were at. Because if you listen to Robin's stuff off of the Robin is Here album, it was two years predated to Britney and Christina and how it was mm. pretty much setting the stage for what was to come two or three years later with the pop R&B explosion of the late 90s, early 2000s in America. Yeah. Man, Robin, man, she was dope too. Like, she had like, especially the remixes on her singles. She always had like dope R&B remixes on her singles. And she was more of a R&B pop act as well. And she was very soulful for a white chick, you know? And she, mm. she was dope, man. And she used to do stuff with Blackness as well. Mm. They were Swedish um, group, well, collective of different musicians and rappers mm. and, and, and singers and stuff. So yeah, man, I remember Robin too. Um, what was the name of the song? It was called um, Show Me Love, right? That was, yes. a, that was yeah. a big breakout single. Mm. yeah so everything was coming out of um sweden at the time was scorching hot man they 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 had the whole rob pop game on lock man like something crazy yeah and they, they had like did. they had that like someone called jennifer or something jennifer brown if i remember correctly and um they had a whole plethora of different r&b soul and and, and pop artists like sweden has always been big on r&b mm. and uh yeah man that even their own artists like um uh What's his name? Stephen. Uh, he's from Sweden too. He, he had a very sort of D'Angelo type of vibe. Let me see. Stephen, 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 Stephen. Uh, my Swedish fam, they're going to kill me for not knowing this anymore. But yeah, they, they had a lot of dope R&B acts in their own country, man. Mm-hmm. They were killing it. Yeah, d- definitely. Yeah. And Robin took the same route that Pink did where I'm starting off doing pop R&B but I want to go and embrace more of my yeah. rock side. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and Robin, I mean, I don't know. Is she, I'm, I'm guessing she's still active today, but she, she had yeah. another sort of a pop. It was more or less of electro pop sort of yeah, yeah. wave that she went through as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Not really doing the pop R and B that was huge before, but like I said, she wanted to embrace more than just doing pop R&B and I believe she got her own record label I believe it's called Kanichiwa Records I believe but it seems like she's been doing that for years yeah. and is very very happy with that and the one thing that puzzled me as a U.S. music lover was that 3T didn't really have the same success over in Europe over in here in America like I think they should have because simply because good records and also your last name is Jackson and you know mm. the family that you come from. So why is it that you think 3T didn't really crack over here in America, whereas over in Europe, they were just as big as the Spice Girls? Well, uh, well, like again, I mean, there were three guys, three black guys. Obviously, you know, they, they were Michael Jackson's nephews. They had that sort of, you know, stick to them. And But the sound that they had was still very pop. Like even um, what was this? What was the song? It was called "Got to Be," I think, on, yeah. on their album. Um, that was got, produced by um, Dennis Pop and Max Martin as well, wasn't it? With, um, Herbie did a rap on that because when I listened to that record, I was like, "This cut yeah, that's right. like something that would have been on the Bashy Boys 
debut album because it had that exactly. Max Martin Dennis Pop sound. Da, 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 da. Got to be, got to be. Yeah, I remember that song. Yeah, it was, it was very sort of popish, and that's why it blew up out here. I mean, Michael Jackson was at his peak anyway. Like that was, that, I think that was the history era yeah. of Michael Jackson. And he was, he was still like you know huge, gigantic, and for him to have his nephews come along as well and do pop. I mean that that was that was a that was a double whammy, man. That, that couldn't fail in Europe. You know what I mean? Mm. That. It, it's just a recipe for success. And even though like 24-7 was more of a sort of R&B ballad, if you will, um, anything was, was, was a pop song. Why was a pop song? Mm-hmm. And I think it's the singles that really led them to blow up like, like they really did. And I actually went to the concert out here as well in Switzerland. And they, they did a great job, man. Mm-hmm. And Tito Jackson, he was the, the, the guitar player on stage with them. And yeah, my, uh, my first proper girlfriend at the time, she was a huge 3T fan, so I went along with her. And uh, yeah, man, it was a good night. Yeah, I bet you probably played Sexual Attention and teased me after that. And speaking of Sexual Attention, one of the <laughs> first album credits by a young Robin Thicke. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, true train spotter here. Look, you're, you're, you're out nerding me a little bit here. I'm worried. Yeah, like I said, I read music liners and music notes. And then another act from the U.S. that was super huge over in Europe was Intro, R.I.P. Kenny Green. And uh, I just had Buddy White on the show a couple of weeks ago. And they have an intro doc that I'll be dropping in June called Intro Music, Lyrics, and Life that I'm sure a lot of people will love. Have you watched it yet? Um, I plead the fifth. I'm just going to say that. But... um. It was, they were a good group. <laughs> they were a good group. I'll tell you about the off-wax. Very stuff, good. But, um, but uh, intro was dope, but it seemed like Europe really took a strong liking to intro. Yeah, me too. Me too. Like, Let Me Be The One, that to me is one of my all-time favorite R&B songs ever, ever. Like, like anytime it drops or anytime I hear it or it plays on my, on my Spotify, man, I... It's never a moment where I think to myself, I cannot hear this song ever again. Mm. I'm tired of it. I've never been tired of that record. I've always been a huge intro fan, man. And uh, yeah, and it's a blessing because um, my, well, I've done an official remix for intro for the soundtrack of this, um, of this documentary that I put out in June. Mm. So uh, yeah, I've done a remix of Funny How Time Flies for them. Okay. And it's, it's a banger, man. And it's featuring Pudgy the Fat Bastard from New York. And yeah, man, um, I remember showing it to, to Buddy because it was, it was just supposed to be a free download. It was just like a promo thing for me. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to hit up Buddy, see what he thinks of it, you know? Mm. So, um, yeah, I called him and he played it. He said, send it to me by email. So I sent it to my email and he played it on his speakers in the studio. He was in his home studio at the time. And his reaction was priceless. He's like, he's like, woo, woo. And then at the end he says, man, I like this more than the original. And I was like, wow, that's a huge compliment, man. So to get that from one of the groups you grew up listening to and loving as a fan, to get that sort of love from Buddy and, uh, and that sort of acceptance and him wanting to put it in, in, in a documentary, which he didn't in the end because it just didn't work out with the scenes, which is totally okay. But he wants to put it on the soundtrack anyway. And uh, that's a blessing in itself, man. So um, I can't wait for you guys to hear that. 
Right. And uh, just to give you a little uh, backstory about Let Me Be The One, when I interviewed Buddy, he told me that was originally supposed to go to Mary J. Blige and be on the What's The 411 album. Yes, exactly. Yes. I watched your interview, man. I watched yeah, it. Yeah, but what ended up yeah. happening was uh, they didn't have enough spots for songs on the album. And that's how Intro ended up um, having Let Me Be The One be on the debut album. And I would be remiss. Love No Limit as well, though, wasn't it? Uh, Love, no Love No Limit, Limit was, was supposed to be an intro song as well, I think. I'm not too sure about that, but I can double check. But uh, I would be remiss if we didn't mention uh, the late Prince Marky D, who passed away last month. And yes. His impact not only on the rap side as one third of the Fat Boys, but production wise, him and Corey Rooney mm. and the underrated slept on free album, Prince Marky D in the Soul Convention. Yes. Now, I felt Amazing. as a producer, Marky D never really got enough credit. Yeah, well, he didn't really sort of put himself out there, really, did he? He, he wasn't like, well, look at me, I did this, did that. He was like the quiet, silent killer in the background, just churning out hits for Christina Milian and, and Jennifer Lopez and, and you know, tons of different R&B acts, man. And yeah, even pop as well. But yeah, man, RIP to Prince Marky D, because I actually had a, a record lined up for him. I produced a record. And yeah, literally... Days before his death, I hit him up about, you know, him featuring on this record I produced. And he was like, yeah, man, send it over. And I never did. I didn't get around to it within those couple of days I was supposed to do it. And literally a couple of days later, he died. And that was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? I mean, not to be egotistical, not to think about my own record, but I couldn't believe it. Like, it was like a bad dream, man. Because, right. yeah, I was hoping, you know, something would become of this. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved Prince Marky D, man, even as a character, as a person, you know, like in interviews, he comes off as so funny, so cool, mm-hmm. down to earth. And despite his success that he's had, you know, over the years, like, as a member of Fat Boys, as a producer, as a solo artist in his own right, man, that's such a huge loss, man. Yeah, definitely. I still mourn him, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. He was also on the 3T Brotherhood album on the title track, which was the last cut on side two, if you had the cassette. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. Is so, so dope. Now, as far as the culture over in Switzerland, as far as DJing, uh, is there a mix mm. of what's going on in other countries and sets, or is it strictly we're just playing US stuff, or do you try to incorporate local artists in? Um. If the local artist is dope, I'd most definitely play him or her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always been one to support acts that people probably wouldn't dare to support or probably don't know. To me, it's all about good music at the end of the day. I mean, I think, you know, for every popular record, there's a local record that's probably just as good, which you could easily, you know, mix together and and get away with it. Mm -hmm. It's just like a lot of DJs don't really have the balls to do it sometimes or maybe they'd frown upon the local acts because they're too local. It's not big. They're, they're probably afraid they don't get like a certain reaction that they're usually not, you know, usually used to mm. as to when you sort of drop, for example, a Travis Scott record or something like that, you know? But um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, in Switzerland, for example, in Germany, rap music is very big. 
especially our own rap music and uh, German rap from Germany over the border is huge. It's huge out here. Personally, I don't like it because it's more of a sort of trappy street rap and a lot of sort of very sort of obscene lyrics. And it's just, I mean, no different to the US right now, to be honest. Mm. But it's, it's not quality at all. It's just really sort of throwaway uh, garbage music. And I'm not into it. And I try and play as little as I can in my sets or as little as I have mm. to. I mean, obviously, you, you get the odd request for this and that song. And you'll be like, well, I kind of like something about it. Okay, I'll play it. But I don't like have a huge collection of German rap in my in my crates or, yeah. or Swiss rap. Um, Swiss rap is, is, is very sort of... Yeah, it's, it's very strange because we Switzerland is divided into cantons, right? So mm. in every canton, you have a different dialect. Mm. So not every dialect really sort of comes across well with the canton you're playing in, if you know what I mean. Mm. So you have that sort of certain barrier as well. But um, yeah, I mean, if, if the music's good, man, I'm not just about good music. I don't care where it's from. I don't care what the person looks like. Um, if it's good music, I'll play it, you know, mm. period. Yeah, because you mentioned how a lot of German rap sounds very trappish. It sounds very yeah. heavily influenced by what's going on with the trap music down in Atlanta and also... And Afrobeats, Afrobeat as well. They got the Afrobeat going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So would you say they're also influenced by like the drill movement too? Um, yeah, it's just, it's just just gangster street rap, man. And with modern production over it, you know. And, and of course, the whole Afrobeat thing is very bigger and I mean well across the whole world right now isn't it it's not just over here but especially here like if you don't play reggaeton and afrobeat uh, the crowd will fall asleep out here mm. it's literally like that like R&B has really been pushed to to the side unless it's like a throwback party where you play all the 90s and 2000s classics mm. like new R&B doesn't really get enough shine out here in the clubs and 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 that's really due to the fact that um most DJs don't inform themselves. They're too busy sort of focusing on, on what's hot in the charts and downloading that, that sort of, you know, chart playlist mm. just to be safe. They're, a lot of DJs play safe out here. They don't really take risks. And um, as you know yourself as a music lover, I mean, there's tons of great R&B that is danceable these days and that sounds good, it's quality. But if the DJs don't know about it, it's not going to ever find a place in, in the club scene out here. And... and I seem to be a part with, you know, a part of a, a a small collection of DJs in Switzerland right now that still plays modern good R&B, mm. uh, but it, it's not widespread as it used to be. Everything's very reggaeton and, and Afrobeat oriented right now. And, um, and then it's even sort of found its way into the German rap as well. Like you have like Afrobeat music with German rap over it. So um, mm. yeah, it's a mixture of what's really in at the moment to be honest. Right. And like you mentioned about DJs playing it safe when you're playing at a club, because if you try to break a record in your set and the club promoter's paying, paying you to play the hits, then maybe mm. the promoter may try to sort change you at the end of the night for not sticking to the strip. No, they don't do that. I mean, not at all. I've never had that problem. Um, when there's a, when you've talked about a fee, you usually get the fee at the end of the night, whether you did a good job or not, whether you get booked again is another question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um yeah so it's never been a money problem it's just about trying to stay relevant as a dj and, mm. and still trying to maintain a certain um you know common thread through your music that's like to show that you're staying true to yourself like mm. a lot of djs like i said don't play much r&b but even though 
I play like commercial nights as well, where they play, you know, where you have to play reggaeton and German rap and 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 US rap and 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 Afrobeat. I still slip in R and B tracks and and future soul tracks like new disco, future soul as well, because it's very mm. sort of bumpy and it's vibey and like Keitronada, for example, you know, mm. he's like one of those producers from that scene. So um, yeah, I try and sort of keep it eclectic and not too play safe i like to sort of break new music to the crowds as well and and sort of educate them sort mm. of give them what they, they they're missing you know and and mm. and having you know discover music they they never knew they needed i think mm. that's part of being a dj i mean it's that that's been one of our um elements of being a dj that i I've, I've always been sort of proud of is breaking new music not being afraid to sort of give the crowd music they've never heard before mm. but still make sure it fits in with what I'm playing that they already know. Right. That in itself is a skill. And that's how you break records. But, you know, not every DJ, unfortunately, feels the same way or acts the same way. So, yeah. Right. Right. And uh, last thing before we close, I'm going to get your take on uh, DJing in the digital age, because as we've seen over the past year, because of COVID, the world stood still, but DJ D-Nice gave us all something to dance mm. with club quarantine and how everybody's doing their own version of it on different platforms and how depending on the platform that you're using, they have those little trackers that can track copyrighted material and mute you. So what's your take on DJing in the digital landscape and also the versus battles? Well, this whole copyright thing is ridiculous to me for one. It's retarded because um, at the end of the day, if you're live streaming to a lot of people, you're promoting an artist's music. You're trying to make a song palatable or or liked by an audience. So you're promoting a song and they're trying to shut you down for promoting the music that could essentially lead to streams on based on whatever you know digital platform you're using or even to downloads if you're still a music buyer. So it's just retarded, man. I mean, these, these copyright laws have just gotten really strict. I mean, most of all, thanks to the whole Robin Thicke and um, Marvin Gaye situation. Mm-hmm. It's become a lot more um, su- surveyed, should I say. Mm. And um, yeah, so um, I don't like it. I don't like the way it is. I don't like the fact that us DJs don't have the freedom, the creative freedom that we do anymore, that you have to play underground music just to sort of um, keep your keep your video you know, uploaded to whatever platform you're using. But of course you have Twitch, for example. I think Twitch is quite tol- tolerant when it comes to uh, playing whatever you want to play. Um, I think Mixcloud has a streaming service as well, and, and they've always been tolerant of music. They don't take you down. So, um, yeah, man, it's just sort of, it depends what kind of DJ you are. If, if you're like a more mainstream DJ, try and find one of these platforms that is more tolerant for what you're doing. And if you play more underground and, and sort of a indie R&B, soul, or indie hip hop, no one's going to come looking after that. It's always a big corporation like Sony and, and Universal that are trying to sort of you know, block you because, you know, obviously, obviously these acts are signed to these labels. So um, trying to shut you down. I mean, I have the same problems with my remixes when I, when, when I upload them to YouTube. And if it's like a, say like an Usher or Jagged Edge or something, someone who's, you know, been signed to a major or is still signed to a major, they immediately take it down before I can even post it. So, um, which is stupid. It's stupid because I'm not taking money out of pe- people's pockets, you know. If anything, I'm giving... Um, a, a DJ a reason more to play the music because I'm giving them an alternative version. Right. 
and that's still keeping their music alive in the club. So I don't understand it, to be honest. Right. It's definitely all about the money and various other factors. That's a whole nother topic for a whole nother day. So do you have yeah. any shout outs you want to give before we wrap this interview? And also, where can people go to find your mixes, plug your social media? Yes, absolutely. Well, um, if you want to check out my remixes, um, you can go to the real DJ soulchild.bandcamp.com and you'll find my whole discography there. You can listen to it and if you like it, purchase it. And you can even download the whole discography if you like. Um, you can find me on YouTube, which is youtube.com slash DJ Soulchild. Um, most of my remixes there, not all of them, as of course, like I said, because of the copyright strikes I keep getting. Um, some mixtapes are on there as well, and you can you can subscribe there. I'm on IG. You can find me at, at DJ Soulchild, all one word. You can find me on Facebook, The Real DJ Soulchild. And yeah, that's where I really hang out the most. And uh, shouts out to everyone who supported me over the years. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading my stuff. Thank you for reposting. Thank you for commenting. Thank you for anything that supports my cause and, and make that has helped me be who I am today. You're all very valued and appreciated. And um, thank you to my mother for my uh, musical education, for you know, giving my giving me my starter ki starter kit in terms of music and uh thank you to my girlfriend for being understanding when it comes to you know sort of really getting down to my remix work and not spending time with her <laughs> uh, i appreciate that and um yeah thank you to you Jarrell, man um it's been an honor talking to you today and you're a great conversationalist and um and a proper music connoisseur and nerd man and i appreciate that man there are not many of you around anymore yeah, they don't make them like they used to. So you can catch this yeah, interview man. wherever you stream your podcast. Also on YouTube, Beyond the Album Cover, all one word. Be sure to join the Facebook group, Beyond the Album Cover, for all podcast-related updates. And at the website, beyondtheabumcover.wordpress.com. Now, if you are an audio-only listener, we're going to have an exclusive DJ Soul Child mix that will only be up on the audio version once the interview airs so definitely check out the different audio streams for that exclusive 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 oh, child 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 one one yeah definitely definitely have to pay homage to dj clue with that but uh once again my yeah. brother from another mother dj soul child thank you once again for coming on to beyond the album cover my man thank you bro the pleasure is all mine thanks Not a lot problem. thanks yes, a lot man yes sir